91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. A revered local doctor, Dr. Benjamin Danielson, resigned from his position as medical director of the Children's Hospital Odessa Brown Children's Clinic in Seattle's Central District. Dr. Danielson stepped down in protest to racial inequity conditions at Children's Hospital. I interviewed him in August of 2019. You'll listen to segments of our conversation. We start with his discussion on sickle cell anemia, a disorder that affects black communities at a higher rate than other communities. Sickle cell disease is really interesting to me on many levels. One is because, at least in my medical education, it was the first disease that was presented to us in our first days of classwork. The reason for that is that it is a very, very biochemical disease. It is a substitution of just one amino acid for another. So if you're a student and you're learning about building blocks of cells and stuff, you're learning about amino acids and proteins. This is a great way to describe what happens when just one amino acid gets switched out, a glutamine for a valine, and what that does to a protein, which changes its shape. And because you learn that the shape of proteins and other substances really impacts how they function, then you see how that change in shape starts to change the function within cells. And you start to see that a red blood cell, rather than being kind of floppy and gooey and able to kind of deform itself and squeeze and shift like a like those octopuses that can kind of squeeze through the neck of a bottle or whatever, they suddenly become kind of stickier and spikier and less deformable because of that one single amino acid changing. And that starts to mean you can picture that maybe those red blood cells don't travel through those tiniest capillaries as well. Maybe they start to plug them and back up. And uh, then you start to understand that sickle cell disease is a disease of blood vessels getting plugged up causing pain, causing a lack of oxygen delivery to organs, causing the progressive injury to parts of your body that can eventually lead to illnesses and a shorter lifespan. So that's the way sickle cell was taught to me in the beginning of medical school. And it kind of stopped there. Amino acid, protein, cell, organ system, body. Did not talk at all about race, racism, cultural context, community context, or the dynamics across cultural contexts when you go for treatment. And that's really interesting to me. It is such an emblematic disease to learn about disease process from, and yet it is ignored in the healthcare system for its ability to teach us about about society and about racism. The... um, Other interesting thing about sickle cell disease is just one where you look at where our resources are distributed when we try to understand disease. Sometimes it's helpful to make this comparison with sickle cell disease, which affects mostly African-American, African-descendant people, not exclusively, but mostly, and that is carried our genes as carriers, unaffected carriers for the most part, at around one in eight, one in nine people. There is another disease that ends up having the same number of people in society affected, but tends to mostly only affect Northern Europeans, and that's cystic fibrosis. So you have these two diseases that can have life-shortening impacts, 
and that uh, for whatever reasons tend to affect one population more than another, but in similar total numbers. So you take that playing field and then you look at where have we put more money into research and the amount of money that's gone into cystic fibrosis research compared to sickle cell disease research is on the magnitude of 2,000 to 1 in dollars or something like that. It's, it's incredible, the difference. You look at some practical things like what's come out of that research. Up until about last year, I would have told you that for sickle cell disease, there's really only been one drug, one medication that has come out as a treatment for sickle cell disease as a medication. And that drug, that medication, wasn't originally intended for sickle cell disease. It was intended to be a support of cancer treatment. In the cystic fibrosis arena, the amount of treatments and medications has just been myriad, incredible numbers. That says something, I think, about where our priorities sit in disease prevalence and who, who really gets access to our best efforts, if not our most robust research work. In the last year or so, a new medication has, has uh, come out, and it's actually the first time a medication was specifically approved for sickle cell disease. Both of these medications basically try to work with your body to change the likelihood that those red blood cells will change shape and become sticky and not move through the vessels as easily. So they are a way to, for the most part, keep your red blood cells from turning into uh, dangerous vehicles, but they are not what you would call a curative treatment. Sickle cell disease is well-treated when the care is received in a place where people trust the providers, is effective when the preventive side and the best intervention services for the organs that are affected work well together. It is best treated when the social circumstances and the life kind of around the person is well supported with just as much fervor and intentionality as the treatment that's going to the red blood cells occur. And it's effective when there is really good continuity between what happens inside a hospital and at the sort of meccas of care and the communication with what needs to happen within communities. All of those are important concepts and components of a healthy healthcare system. And when any one of those breaks down, trust is so important. In our clinic, we bring hematologists and lung specialists and neurobehavioral specialists to the clinic because that's the trusted space. And this interaction between the prevention folks and the treatment or intervention folks is really collaborative and cohesive. At least it's what we try to do. Our sickle cell team follows families to the hospital when their kids are hospitalized, partly because they need a voice there that understands, knows them, is familiar, and helps advocate for them within that very weird and alien space called an inpatient ward. Ironically, sickle cell patients are placed in the same rooms and wards as cancer patients, partly because the people who treat them are hematologists, and hematologists are trained both in blood disorders and in cancer care. So it's because of the person that's trained that drives where a child ends up in a ward, and that's really important because if you picture this, in one bed is a child who has 
a cancer diagnosis that you can completely see in every way that it's affecting them, including the treatments affecting them, losing their hair, throwing up, diarrhea, sick as can be, and sick for maybe the length of a pregnancy, let's say, nine months. And then from there on, you have a good sense of what's going to happen, or you have some plateau, or you have some recovery. Everything about that pulls at your heartstrings. You see a baby lose their hair. You see a child go through this illness and then come out of the tunnel and go towards wellness or having relapses. It's very understandable. In the bed next to them is a person with sickle cell disease who has already dealt with pain every single day of their life, all of their lives. Their response to pain is way more internal than it is external. Don't writhe. They don't lose their hair. They don't throw up. There's actually not a test that you can do, like an imaging study that would show you exactly where the pain was. There's not a test of the blood that would tell you exactly how much pain somebody should be in. So a person who's used to dealing with pain, who doesn't show it externally but feels it internally, and for which there's no test that you can show to know exactly what that pain is on some pseudo-objective level, comes in and says, I need I need pain treatment. While next to them is this writhing, losing their hair, very, very clearly suffering person. I don't care how compassionate you are, how good your training is. If you're a nurse or a doctor treating those two patients, your perception could be really, really different. Put on top of that, that the person without external signs of pain is also of a different race or culture than you. And then you have the, the, the cultural gap that you have to span as well. Those moments where someone says they're in pain and you just have to trust that they're in pain and treat them say a lot about how we treat people who aren't exactly like us in this society. So whew, there's an incredible test of our healthcare system when you have all of those dynamics working together. There are studies that show that two children can go to the same emergency room and have the same knowable pain like appendicitis, something nobody would dispute the pain component of at all. And study after study, there's one from 2015 that looked at a million kids across this country going to ERs for appendicitis. And the chance that you'll get adequate pain care for that is 80% less if you're black. So even in the realm of knowable pain, we treat people differently based on the color of their skin. Think about what happens when you add that component of some doctor saying, I can't see a broken bone on an x-ray. I can't measure your pain objectively. So this component of distrust enters into that conversation. And it's a terrible thing for youth to feel. So this youth has to say, my pain is a 10 and has to work so hard to draw out your compassion because you don't get to see something compassionate in some lab test or something else. I think there's some really, really painful lessons for us to learn about what it truly means to be compassionate in that scene. 91.3 KBCS, you're listening to The Grit. Next is another conversation with Dr. Benjamin Danielson about ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences. Dr. Danielson describes what ACEs is and how medical centers can do more for their patients. This interview is from August of 2019. The ACEs story goes back to studies done by a physician in the Kaiser Healthcare System in Southern California who was wondering why the health outcomes for many of his adult patients were just not responding to the interventions that 
he was suggesting and doing. And so he started to cast this broad net and ask more and more questions. And over time found that these 10 things kept coming up in people's backgrounds, especially large combinations of these 10 things. And the most important part to me is that this was a community that was socioeconomically actually relatively well off. This was a community that was majority white. It was the background of these economically comfortable, mostly white adult people who then related their stories, uh, their experiences as children, and included these elements in them. And from that, a number of different researchers at different sites, including Harvard and uh, out in California, started to look at those correlations and do some of the regression analysis and the other fancy math that then turns that into a pretty strong relationship that you can measure, count, and create expectations based on. What are some of the examples of what an adverse childhood experience could be? There are mostly things that you would recognize as unfortunate events for a child to experience, like the exposure to domestic violence in your home, the experience of uh, having had neglect or physical punishment be a big part of your life, maybe living in a home where parents struggle with mental health conditions in a way that really adversely impacts your well-being, things like that. The seriousness of adverse childhood experiences is important to think about Partly because I believe before we had much language around ACEs, many people, of course, sort of inductively knew that the hard experiences that you had could have this impact on you long term. But the ACEs studies actually brought that into a very, very clear light. And it's pretty unusual in some ways to find something where there's this direct correlation between the number of events and the stepwise increase in risk for illness. So I feel like it was the first time that you could pull these ideas of social exposures, things in your life happening around you, even if they're not to you, and long-term health outcomes. It's pretty remarkable and powerful and painful, full of uh, a deeper story, though, than just a score or a specific risk for heart disease. Or depression. So ACEs, does that also include things like historical trauma and epigenetics kind of things? ACEs themselves do not include the epigenetic impacts themselves. They're really specifically talking to the experiences that a, a child had. I think the continued thinking about ACEs has started to speak about community ACEs and broader uh, generational ACEs, which does start to bring this conversation about historical trauma into scope. However, uh, the original studies were really about what does an individual experience in their early years? How does that translate into their lifelong health? The other two important things to remember that ACEs does not speak to in any way at all. Uh, one is the impact of poverty in this country on your health, and the other is the impact of oppression, like racism, on your health. So that's one thing to understand it as a medical professional and, you know, be aware of it as you're working with people, right? But then there's the other aspect of it, which is medical professionals usually come into things when someone is feeling sick. So where does that put medical professionals in, in looking at this? That's such a good question. 
Where does that put medical professionals? Or where does, where does it imply that maybe some of our training and preparation should be directed in a different way? I'm a primary care pediatrician, so I have a huge respect for prevention and supporting wellness, not just intervening when someone is ill. Also working within those young age groups, I feel like puts pediatricians in a space to be potentially especially impactful in terms of affecting lifelong health. So suddenly as a pediatrician, I feel like I might be able to help someone who's in their 80s down the road because of the work that you do during their childhood. The second thing for me is that as a pediatric primary care provider um, among nurse practitioners and doctors and PAs and all of the other wonderful types that are out there, we are all also very much involved and invested in supporting children's uh, social determinants, the world of exposures and experiences around them, not just their bodies, even if you think about their whole bodies, which is a stretch for some healthcare systems to think whole body, whole mind. It's also important to be thinking whole family, whole community, whole of experiences, and perhaps even the, the timeline of experiences, the, the life course, if you will. Then you start to think about maybe the ACEs that mom experienced when she was a child. Maybe you start to think about the uh, genetic components that go into the creation of a child and what ACEs those genes are exposed to. I've come to believe that ACEs uh, exist within a circle of toxic stress experiences that happen in your life. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the original studies were done in people with a fair amount of security economically and who didn't face uh, as much racism as other people do. And so that tells me that anybody can experience a number of ACEs and they can affect your life. It also tells me that there's a separate circle, maybe called oppression, toxic oppression, that has its own impact on your life. Even if you could say that you never experienced those 10 ACEs, Racism and the other oppressions out there have their own impact on your well-being. You can't solve an oppression problem by saying you're going to fix ACEs problems, but there is a huge amount of overlap, and people who have to face both racism and an ACEs score of seven really deserve as much attention as you can provide. And there's a third circle. I call it toxic capitalism. Other people would call it poverty. Uh, but those are all separate circles, and they can affect your well-being independently, or together. We've heard stories of Serena Williams having a near-death experience in giving birth that really almost cost her her life as a black woman in this country, not because she was socioeconomically deprived, because she is in the well-to-do categories, but the racism and oppression that we have in our country have an impact on her health and her chance to have a healthy birth experience. We've seen plenty of uh, folks also in low-income communities who are strong and together and, and have wonderful community experiences and low ACEs experiences, and those communities are thriving. We should reject the idea that you have to be well off in order to thrive as a community. So I feel that there are these three intersecting circles in our lives, and some of them overlap and some of them don't. Uh, cap capitalism, toxic capitalism anyway, oppression like racism, and marginalization, ableism, all of those isms, the way we treat the LGBTQ community still in this country, the many different ways that we um, 
we other in a way that is uh, degrading and detrimental. And then there's a circle called toxic stress. ACE is an, is an important one of those. Just to make it slightly more complicated, I think there are two others in that circle too. Because um, I think ACEs by themselves doesn't do justice to the stress that some people feel. You may not have had those 10 things happen in your life, um, but you might have every single day the trickling, constant, mini crisis experiences that then wear you down, that weather down and wear down your ability to uh, withstand illness, to hold off uh, emotional stress and trauma. And I think the day-to-day drip, drop, drop of those stress hormones in your body and those experiences in your environment also have this detrimental effect on your health. And so I don't want to say that you only get to talk about bad health outcomes from stress if it's in the frame of ACEs, because there are other stresses that happen. I hear too many times a mom say, my car broke down last week. I had to figure out how to get alternate transportation. My job does not give me the chance to have paid leave off. And my grandmother lives far away from me now. So for me, in order for me to get to this clinic, even to even start getting care for my child, I have to deal with all of these mini crises. And now I don't know when I go home whether we're going to have food on the table that's healthy or whether I'm going to have to make some uh, uh, necessary but harder choices about the nutritional content that I'm feeding my child. None of those are ACEs, right? And yet they all have a pretty important effect. And if you live through your life with those going on every day, that's pretty hardcore. There's a third set that I think are mild stresses that happen at critical times in your life. And the most important example to me is childbirth, where um, just something mild and unexpected happens, but it, it sets inside of you a sense that something else more deeply is going on, something else is wrong. I think of the mom who goes into the hospital expecting a vaginal birth and and then has a C-section occur. And everything could go great with that C-section. Everything could go fine. Uh, But that is traumatic to have that change in your expectation. And I think there are lots of parents who then leave that experience thinking something else is wrong. Something else is going to go wrong with, with this child because I didn't expect that first thing to happen. And now there's something else going on there that I think it's uh, not quite doing it honor to call it worried well. There's something in there about you've had an experience, not a serious, serious one, but it happened at a key time and it changed the way you you felt about how secure you were about the well-being of your child. And all of that means I think our healthcare system should be addressing those things instead of waiting till someone's sick and trying to treat them. You know, medical professionals could then become advocates for the entire family. Do you find yourself in that kind of position from time to time? Yes, we've actually tried to structure our clinic around really thinking more um, environmentally, more holistically about what a child needs to thrive and be happy. One example is that we've created a special fund that is not designated in any particular way. We call it a basic needs fund. And it's really there to respond in the moment to the kinds of stressors that a family might experience. Just before this interview, I was weighing in on a special fund request from a family that was trying to get other family members closer to this family. They were going through a lot. Their child has sickle cell disease, and they really needed their whole family to kind of be together and be able to embrace. And a grandmother is living in another state 
and they needed help uh, getting that grandmother transported here. That's so funny. That ties together so many parts of what we are talking about already, but we're able to uh, make a contribution to the transportation needs to get grandmother into closer connection with this mom and this child as they are managing this really hard diagnosis called sickle cell disease. What are some of the ways that you interact with the family and your interest in the environment of the child? I'm going to speak um, maybe from our best intention, best hope, best heart, optimistic view, because I don't know if we ever get it right all the time, but I'll share what our intentions are and how we try to make sure those are impactful. One is that we keep trying to build more and more time into our our visits, our encounters. There's so much more to uh, the experience and the health and the well-being of a child than could ever show up in a 20-minute visit, right? So we try to intentionally build a lot more time into visits, even ones that on the face of it should be brief. Uh, can you recheck my child's ears to make sure that ear infection is getting better? That should be, you know, five minutes of peeking in an ear and talking to a mom. However, what happens so often is uh, right near the end of that five minutes is this, oh, by the way, moment, we call it, where a mom might say, just, oh, by the way, uh, we are about to get kicked out of our apartment. Or, oh, by the way, I haven't shared this before, but uh, uh, we're survivors of domestic violence, and I'm getting more worried that um, a threatening person is trying to, trying to find me and get back into my, our lives. And it's, I think it's a horrible moment in healthcare when someone would say something like, well, good luck with that. Your ears are fine and see you next time. That would be the worst, the worst kind of care possible. We try to make sure that we have a moment to listen, hold that space, and also, if possible, uh, start a path of, of support in, the, in those moments. So that takes time first. The second thing it takes is being unafraid to ask I will share that healthcare professionals, especially young ones, uh, come with this worry about, please don't ask me something I don't have an answer to. And I get it on the one level, uh, but it's, it's, there's a lot of hubris in saying, I only want to have conversations when, when I know the answers to them. And I think that's pretty unfortunate. They'll say stuff like, um, I feel like it's a, harm or, it's a harm to a family for them to share something and for me not to be able to do something about it. And I kind of understand that. But boy, what would it be like if we all went through the world only having conversations that we knew the end of? Anyway, we try to build a different mentality into our clinic and say, wow, that looks tough. And I can only sit here and, and, and feel this with you and, and, and hold this with you. And maybe we can start to build in different kinds of responses. I mentioned our basic needs fund, which is sometimes important. Uh, we think about our care as a team, and sometimes it's it's our social worker who has a, a connection and a and an ability to listen in a way that is especially important, and they can be part of that visit. Sometimes we need different expertise, and we have a program called a medical legal partnership, which is kind of amazing. Uh, just what you can do when you bring different kinds of minds together to help work on challenging problems. When it comes down to housing rights or educational rights or access to services, the partnership between a medical person, a social services person, and a lawyer, ooh, that can be really powerful. So I hope that uh, 
that we continue to stress and push and stretch ourselves to be able to take on problems that today that feel really difficult because I think there are solutions tomorrow that are going to be pretty amazing. That's a piece of the model that we're trying to build. We're trying to uh, live out what we talk about when we say that healthcare should be more integrated with lots of team members coming together in the name of supporting a child and their family and the community around them. And then the last thing for now I'll say is that we also try to get outside our walls as much as possible to make sure that uh, we're sometimes more conveniently in the spaces that feel more comfortable and safe to families in order to be good listeners in those spaces instead of on our own terms. It's important for it not to always be a home game, right? Gotta have some away games. Oh, and one other thing that I'll say that's structured into our, our visits, especially in the first year or two, is we try to incorporate more of an understanding of things like parenting confidence and the social services and support that, that come with that. We try to look out more for things you would expect, like uh, maybe postpartum mood uh, concerns. But also we try to get a little more deeply about, like, how do you feel about being a parent? Um, how hard does it feel right now? Who's there to support you? What's important to you uh, culturally or from a community pr perspective in order to, to do that as well as you want to? There are actually some evidence-based screening tools that we use, one we stole from Australia, and there are some other tools that we use that are just more responsive to what the community tells us they need. We really do need to reform our healthcare training process I feel like I experience many, many students who came into their medical training as wonderful listeners and caring hearing beings full of compassion, and then the listening skill gets squeezed out, the sense of compassion sometimes gets blurred and blunted, and you see people requiring almost a period of recovery from their training in order to regain their souls, I'll say it that way. And I think that's just a shame. On top of that, we create a healthcare system that is, oh, American in its worst ways, the sort of solo cowboy who's trained to be this hero who's going to swing into town, fix those poor, deplorable people and make them better. There's so many bad messages in the way we verbalize and don't verbalize what we're saying to people who go into training in healthcare. Healthcare is at its best, such a team sport, and it's so much better actually when it's people from many different circles. You know, take that lawyer, take that teacher, take the social worker who's skilled in those ways, take the mental health provider, take the maybe the healthcare provider who hasn't been exposed to medical school quite so much, put them together, you're going to have a much better uh, clinic or whatever you want to call it than you had before. Uncommon partnerships are so important. You can find an opinion piece written by Dr. Danielson of his experience on the online media outlet South Seattle Emerald. You can find a link to the piece on our KBCS website. To hear more grassroots local reporting and to find any of the stories used for the show, you can visit kbcs.fm and hit the News tab. You can also search KBCS on your source for podcasts like SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify.